G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, the only national program focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Radio Foundation on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The last week of Federal Parliament saw every part of the Australian majority under the LMP policy hammer. The cashless debit card was continued with amendments passing narrowly by one vote, not made permanent but extended for another two years in existing trial areas, with One Nation's leader publicly announcing that people receiving a social security payment have forfeited their citizens' rights. Undeterred, the LNP introduced their Industrial Relations Bill, which aims to remove the rights of millions of Australian workers, removing conditions and institutionalising insecure work and wage theft. In this program, we talk with Alison Pennington, economist from the Centre for Future Work, for an insight into how damaging this raft of IR laws will be if passed. It's interesting that the uh, federal government's decided to present these sweeping IR changes in the last sitting before people go to Christmas holidays as if it's an afterthought. But in actual fact, this legislation aims to affect millions of Australians at work when they can be fired and how much they are paid. Do you want to give my listeners a bit of an understanding of how sweeping these changes are? I think this is absolutely being coordinated to to hit us when we are most tired and, and we're at our weakest after such a mammoth year of you know getting through the pandemic. And I think what it shows is even though the, the government has been forced, dragged, kicking and screaming on the public health agenda after having a position that we had to live with the virus, it's clear that they're definitely not singing a different tune when it comes to industrial relations. And what is a comprehensive attack on uh, the system of legal minimums for wages and conditions in our award system, um, and then also in the collective bargaining space. So the, in terms of the, the main wage-setting instruments we have in law in Australia, they are attacking them on all ends, loosening of the, the requirements and uh, yeah, the systems around whether you can use casual work um, that will expand the size of the casual workforce, um, giving employers far more power to cut the pay and conditions of workers. And then you've got this work choices era return to unilateral employer wage setting power uh, in enterprise agreements, which allows employers to basically draw up agreements with themselves with very little oversight that go below the system of awards, below the minimum rates of awards. Uh, we've got a, a large increase in casualisation in our workforce. In fact, Australia has got the largest uh, in um, the OECD, uh, and that's been an increase. But also that's come to people's attention is wage theft and uh, the fact that RAFU has been able to claw back some of the... Uh, conditions and stop very unfair agreements by applying to the Commission using the better overall 
the boot test. People aren't allowed to offer workers enterprise agreements that put them in a worse position. There was a significant case around Coles, enterprise bargaining arrangements, which was thrown out by the Fair Work Commission using the boot test. We've seen uh, fly-in, fly-out workers, a case forcing an employer to pay a whole range of appropriate uh, leave to a person who was working in shifts that were completely stable shifts, but he was being called a casual. Now, that was taken to court. The company had to pay the uh, money. Now, this government is quite clearly trying to curtail workers' rights by retrospectively undoing the concept of wage theft and dismantling the concept of permanent work, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. I think those court decisions you're referring to were a massive motivation for this bill. They want to mount an attack on workers pre-Christmas, but they also have a pressing need to overturn the implications of the, the Rosada and Work Pack decisions. Because right now, employers are up for over $30 billion in unpaid entitlement as a result of these cases. And they've been lobbying the government very hard all year, even among the pandemic, amongst it all, to make sure that we immediately dissolve any legal requirements of them to pay unpaid entitlement. What we have in Australia, like you said, is some of the highest proportions of, of casual work of the workforce. A quarter of all workers don't have access to paid leave entitlement. But of those 2.6 million workers, half of them have worked regular shifts for a year or more. Over a million workers are potentially falling under the purview of those two decisions. But then not only are they, is the government um, and Christian Porter actually dissolving those, the implications of those court decisions, they're actually pushing further. And they're actually saying that now casual work is whatever an employer says it is. This type of employer-defined, you know, non-legally defined form of casual work is incredibly dangerous because it basically says now an employer says what kind of work you are and what you're entitled to under law. And if they take you on as a casual and they call you a casual, then that's the end of the, the story. And they've, of course, branded this whole portion of the bill as roads to permanency because they're formalising um, the ability of casual workers to request permanent work. After 12 months of being on the books, six months of those 12 months have to be uh, have regular hours and regular schedules. We actually already had this entitlement in most awards, but employers can turn down these requests on reasonable grounds, and like the, the requirements of them to, to demonstrate those reasonable grounds are really low. So it's, it's all a big branding, it's been exercised to make it look like they're providing permanency, but what's actually going on is employer power to deny millions of workers access to permanent entitlements and all of the things we associate with you know, traditional, decent, good work that you need to fought for uh, you know, for so long. You, know, you mentioned wage theft there. There's obviously a very close relationship to wage theft in industries where employer power is, you know, not countervailed in any way or in in, in a effective way by by union representation. Um, so it, I think it's very clear and it's very likely that uh, you know expanding casual work is is going to correlate strongly with more wage theft. I think it's important for us to cut through the spin because this is very far from creating roads to permanency for the workforce. 
So let's look at the spin because we've got a government that uh, is obsessed with public relations and publicity campaigns rather than policy. This policy is being uh, projected uh, as something that's in response to COVID. But that's a lie because all the things that are held in this IR legislation predate COVID. Uh, so that's firstly dismissed. The idea that uh, there's going to be more jobs because of it. Uh, and uh, one of the other ones that the employers come out and say are people like uh, casual arrangements because it gives them flexibility and they want that extra bit of money. And if you lay that against people wanting secure work, sickness benefits and annual leave, it's very difficult to accept their point of view, isn't it? The casual wage premium is an absolute myth. And that's I think that's the, the first protocol on the spin the spin machine here. Because really it's only just younger workers who say they prefer to not be in a permanent role. But then increasingly, you know, younger workers over the age of twenty five, that's when they start saying they want permanent work with access to leave entitlements. So when the government says Casuals receive a 25% loading uh, to experience that insecurity. Research does not back that up. Casuals are not being paid more than permanent workers in the same jobs. So um, about a third of casuals actually received no loading at all in recent data. And the premium, which is under the awards and by law supposed to be 25%, it's actually much closer to 4 to 5% in those industries with the highest casual density. So where casual work is most common and where that hourly premium is supposed to be uh, clear, it's much closer to 4 to 5%. And then, you know, actually it's a penalty to work in casual work in other sectors. Like, there's no bones about it. This is, uh, casual work is a way to cut labour costs. And even if workers did get that 25% loading, it wouldn't actually compensate for all the entitlements that they, they lose in, you know, redundancy, annually, sick leave. Uh, so, that's that's the I think the 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 first and most important place for us to to point out that this is um, there's all spin here um, and you know all the survey data is showing workers majority of casual workers want access to permanent work and to those normal leave entitlements and especially uh, in through this pandemic sick leave obviously being a pretty important entitlement to extend to jobs to make them pandemic proof. Uh, so to speak, and instead of countervailing the problem we have of up to one in three workers not having access to sick leave in a in a global health crisis, the government's expanding the number of workers who won't have those entitlements. They start off by saying it's about giving people uh, flexibility, but there's you know the overall industrial relations bill is part of government's response to the COVID crisis. They they're trying to make it look like they're singing a different tune, but in the budget they committed. $110 billion in taxing and spending measures, uh, which are overwhelmingly about putting more money in the back pockets of businesses through subsidies and tax cuts, all under the guise of giving more money to business in their back pockets means that they will invest that money in making more jobs. And that's just, that's, you know, we are decades into this neoliberal law and we can call bullshit on what is clearly going on here, uh, which is uh, workers' share of national income is collapsing. Profits are up, um, including this year. This is the first recession in Australia's history where private profits have increased 
it's up 18.6% on last year. So it's clear that employers are looking to pocket wage cuts and they're also banking public money through big fiscal support from government in the crisis and they're banking that public money as private profit. Surely after decades of this neoliberal mantra, creating business-friendly policies is going to be good for us in the long term. This, I think this IR bill is really the nail in the coffin on, on this thing and I hope that um, we come into 2021 with a, a, a strong campaign uh, to um, you know, build out of our public health efforts and, and lend Australian people to unionism and, and to a, a progressive vision of an economy in Australia. You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are talking with Alison Pennington, economist from the Centre for Future of Work, about the industrial relations legislation the LMP government introduced into Parliament on Wednesday of the last week of Federal Parliament. One of the things that people don't talk about, but which is absolutely pivotal to this, is the imbalance of power between the working class and the employer class, which the government is entrenching. Now, workers uh, need to understand, really, that if they don't want to be pushed around continually and need to have some voice in the work that they do and the amount of work they're able to have and their safety at work, that there needs to be some sort of parity of power. And this IR legislation is a death knell to any parity of power. Yeah, I think it's the... The most uh, unusual thing about Australian class consciousness or the lack of it um, and people's perceptions of unionism is they, they still have this narrative that uh, unionism and unions play you know, a, a major role in setting wages and have power you know, and, and, and have space to move and to undertake normal union activities and bargaining activities. But really, collective bargaining, which is the, the major institution by which employees can aggregate their power in a workplace and try and find some way to impose a cost of disagreement on employers who want to keep cutting their wages. Collective bargaining in Australia has been collapsing uh, you know, for at least the last 10 years. It's really, it's really picked up. So it's now less than um, 12, 13% of the private sector actually has access to collective bargaining. So that means 87% of all private sector workers go to work every day in an environment where a heavily resourced, much more powerful actor has the power to determine your life, your wages, your living standards, you know, the quality of your life in your work where you spend you know, half or majority of your waking hours. Um, and it's, I, I hope that um, you know, in this time we, we start to um, you know, really raise awareness about the fact that while Australia has had a history of you know, some of the most militant and impressive uh, steps forward for unionism. Like, unionism really started in Australia, you know, when it was colonised. Yeah, I hope that we, we, we think of, um, look at the arbitration uh, system as it stands today, which has been increasingly weaponised to, to attack organisations, and we find a way to essentially give birth to a new, new era of Australian unionism. I think it has to take into account whatever gains that we can hold in, in the, kind of the Fair Work Commission and in our minimum wages and our award system, uh, but that it starts to really start uh, pushing out uh, collective bargaining power so that we can rebuild 
the, the firepower required to actually turn this ship around for, for bargaining power across the, the whole class. We know now that the labor's share of national income, of all of the value you know, being produced in the domestic in the national economy, the share of that going to labor has been declining consistently and steadily since the mid-70s, which was the height of Australian militant unionism in terms of unionization, industrial action, um, and you know, overall union activity and wages compliance work. So it's if you were to plot the decline of unionism and the decline of like the share going to workers of all the value they create, um, they they directly correlate, and uh, it's it is absolutely time um, for us to be talking about what this this new contemporary view of of, of unionism looks like, um, and how do we relate to to uh, yeah things like the Fair Work Commission and the existing enterprise bargaining system. I've been a very strong advocate for sectoral bargaining uh, systems that, ex- that function effectively and successfully in, in many other social democratic countries, um, like the Scandinavian countries. And it's, uh, it's absolutely time we move away from this work and enterprise agreement level system and start playing on the terrain that employers are fighting workers on, uh, which is cross-sector, cross-industry, cross-economy. Um, we, can't, we can't keep fighting at this workplace level. The Labor Party uh, has called this, labelled this, uh, IR uh, Stoush, Morrison's pay cut, and it's been estimated that the pharmacy assistants will lose $6,000 a year, personal carers $11,000, and retail workers $5,500. And it it goes on uh, for projects over $500 million or $250 million with the Minister's approval agreements that, that are struck according to this IR arrangement, would go for twice their normal length, up to eight years, not taking into account any of the uh, inflation or anything else that might be happening in the landscape. It, it's, a, it's a new version of wage theft, isn't it? Mm, yeah, and, and as you point out, this is um, another feature of the bill uh, which hasn't been getting as much attention. Um, but there's a, there's a class of agreement called Greenfield's Agreement, and what they they are at present the only uh, the only wage setting instrument or agreement instrument that says that an, a union must be involved in drawing up the agreement or negotiating the agreement. The, all the other agreements you can make, you can have employers who effectively make deals with themselves. They can write up agreements, put it to their employees without information, put very lax votes or you know, measures of agreement. But what's happened to this Greenfields class has been, of course, under attack for decades. Under the Fair Work Act, it was the role of unions was reinstilled in that class. But then in in 2014 or 15, the LNP said to weaken the Greenfields, they said, well, if you can't reach agreement in six months with a union, then you can take it to the Fair Work Commission and they can basically rubber stamp it. If an employer who wants to set up a, a big capital-intensive you know, mine or big construction project says, we only want to give you 1.5% per year in a wage increase every year for the terms of the agreement, if a union tries to push back on that and mounts a campaign that goes beyond six months, it can get rubber stamped anyway. This was pre-IR bill. What this new IR bill does now is it extends that agreement class, the Greenfields, that says an employer can then lock in wages for eight years. 
and they originally wanted life of project agreements, which was, you know, potentially going to push it out for as long as, you know, 10 to 15 years. But they've, they've got it to eight years. Uh, what that means is, um, importantly, for, for projects over $250 million that, that can use this agreement class, which is not, by the way, a very high threshold of expenditure that's quite small, $250 million. For eight years, what employers can do then is block industrial action. They can get protection of, against industrial action because um, under Australian law, you can't take industrial action um, outside of uh, while an agreement is in process, you can only do it during renegotiation. So if employers are getting away from bargaining and not negotiating, um, they are, you know, this is a very lucrative uh, risk management strategy for them. And if you think about what this means for the, the gas-led recovery and uh, the massive push to keep deepening our reliance on fossil fuel extraction, what this means is if there was any possibility of the union movement working with it, with the environmental movement or um, you know, other sections of civil society to start organising around um, you know industrial action as a as a strategy to to deal with uh, wanting to build the case for renewable energy, um, this would be illegal from the outset, and those workers would uh, face and their unions face you know probably millions of dollars in fines um, if they took any action. So. It's, it's, it has broader impacts for curtailing the democratic rights of um, all of us um, and definitely the economic democratic rights of the workers themselves. Um, and yes, Annie, you're absolutely right. If, if an employer decides to, uh, to get these agreements across um, and they say we'll, we'll pay 1% a year, if inflation is at 1.5%, we're looking at people, workers having to uh, be recruited onto an agreement which they are unlikely to have even voted for because these can be drawn up and then people can be hired onto that same agreement and be covered by that agreement without them having voted on it or seen it. Um, and that can be basically locking in declining wage outcomes on the whole project. And if you've got a few of these running in a sector, we're talking about declining uh, wages across the entire sector. So it's um, the, the greenfield changes in this agreement are, are definitely... Uh, some incredibly pernicious and, and very dangerous uh, laxing of the of the existing standards. Yeah, it wouldn't be going too far to say that this IR legislation is basically the destruction of Australian society. Well, I mean, workshops is the comparison thing. What workplaces did was um, weaponise agreement making in the, by getting, putting all the power in the hands of employers to block unions or to allow agreements to undercut the awards. In that sense that, you know, the wages and conditions and the living standards that many uh, Australians would associate, well, probably wouldn't associate with unionism, but um, they were built in, in um, you know, in the early stages of Australia's colonisation, early days of unionism, uh, and then in the post-war period in particular, the times of full employment policy. Like our industrial relations system was so powerful and so important for ensuring that as we grew and developed, um, those gains and those productivity gains that were the product of everyone working to produce them were shared with those people. And that is, I think that's uh, um, Sally McManus in her press club uh, address uh, a couple of weeks ago referred to the social contract of, of Australia being built on a, you know, a strong system of minimum standards, some economic democracy, immunism, Medicare, 
you know, and, and the, the role of strong public services, uh, really holding this sense of collectivism um, and that being, I think Australians understand that public services, in particular uh, Medicare, the healthcare system and public education and some welfare system are, are important parts of what it means to be Australian. I think those things are um, understood, that sort of general social democratic understanding across the Australian population. What I'm concerned about and what I'm worried about is that um, through decades of attacks on the union movement by the state um, and conservative governments, that Australians don't readily and easily attach those outcomes with the uh, the strength of the industrial relations system and the things that you know working people have fought for over long periods of time. That's going to be, I guess, the way I see it is that's a major task um, of the union movement in the, the coming period is to start pointing to and usefully connecting the things that the progressive things that Australians care about. Those institutions are. It's impossible to understand them, including the superannuation system, I should say. Um, for all its flaws, it's, it's under um, massive attack and it's something that we need to defend in order to improve it in the long term. Um, but these institutions are absolutely intimately connected with unionism, economic democracy, systems of minimum wages and protection, and, and collective bargaining. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. That's it for Stick Together this week. If you want to catch up with the show, we are podcast on 3cr.org.au and on iTunes and Spotify. If you want to drop us a line, email us on sticktogether3cr at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next week, remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you and stick together. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? See it! Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Tell me how you can Will you be a lousy scab Or will you be a man Which side are you on Which side are you on Tell me which side are you on Which side are you on Tell me which side are you on?